Okay. So just a quick solo episode this week to tide over until Rick Brown and I tackle Battlestar Galactica 1978 later this week. And in prepping for Battlestar Galactica, you know, you immerse yourself in the world of dystopian science fiction. And in prepping for the Battlestar Galactica 1978 episode, man, you are swimming against the tide if you like really good science fiction television content. Now, I'm not going to spoil that episode. There are a lot of things to appreciate and love about Battlestar Galactica in 1978, especially if you were a child of eight or nine or 10 years old in 1978, 1979, when this series was on. So I'm going to get into all that with Rick and I'll save it for that. But suffice it to say, it is not a superlative example of television science fiction. So in the meantime, I had to just get a fix of quality science fiction. And I've gotten this fix a few weeks ago, but I'm retroactively refixing myself with it so I can share it with you because I've wanted to just put the word out for any of you who haven't yet seen the Apple TV series Severance to really give it a shot and stay with it. Because as I've titled this episode, you're not watching Apple TV's Severance and you should be. And I want to get into a little bit about why that might be after we talk a little bit about the show. Now, All the episodes are out. I'm going to very pointedly indicate towards the end of this segment the point at which from that point forward, I will discuss spoilers about the finale of the nine episodes that are currently released. And I will give you a very clear indication of where you can turn this podcast off if you don't want to hear those spoilers. I would highly recommend turning the podcast off at that point and not listening to the spoilers if you haven't seen the series. I want you to have the same sort of jaw-dropping experience that I had in watching the series for the first time. So again, I will give you a very clear-cut indication when that is. It's not going to be anytime soon. Now, Severance, as you may or may not know, is a science fiction psychological thriller streaming television series which is created by Dan Erickson and Ben Stiller. Uh, And Ben Stiller and a woman whose name is, I believe, Aoife McArdle, A-O-I-F-E. I I believe that's pronounced Aoife McArdle, uh, are the two main directors. I'm going to just read you the Wikipedia description because it's very concise. Severance. Uh, is a TV series in which a sinister technology company called Lumen Industries uses a severance medical procedure to separate the non-work memories of some of their employees from their work memories. One severed employee, Mark, gradually uncovers a web of conspiracy from both sides of the division. So from that setup unfolds what we have over the nine episodes of Severance. Now, from that simple premise, the actors are the first thing that I'd like to cite in terms of uh, the quality of this series, because the premise, and this is, is, again, a series that was, I believe, filmed entirely in the midst of the pandemic. So it has some of what we will come to sort of view as pandemic hallmarks, you know, limited cast, limited environment. You're thinking about things like White Lotus is another example. Uh, things that take place within a few key locations. 
with a manageable number of cast members who can be brought together for the duration of filming. And that's what they've done here. So the relatively small cast includes Adam Scott, who plays the aforementioned Mark Scout. Uh, he is part of the Severance program. And given that this is a television series taking place in 2022, of course, it is about trauma and grief, right? Can't have a, can't have a showrunner, can't have a writer unexploring trauma and grief, heaven forbid. So they do that here too. Uh, and he is grieving the death of his wife, Gemma, who we come to see throughout some of his, his Audi. They use the term innie and Audi, like your belly button. Your innie is the severed version of you that goes to work every day at Lumen. Your Audi is the version of you that your innie has no knowledge or awareness of while at work or at any other time. So you have your innie who's at work and you have your Audi who lives a separate life. Now, your Audi understands that they have taken this procedure and is able to discuss it socially with friends and family. And their awareness that they've taken this step is an interesting acting moment for all of the characters who have chosen severance. And it's also interesting to observe the non-severed characters interact with those characters. And there's many great, great scenes where because of that, uh, you kind of don't know what really is going on. There's particularly a great scene between uh, Mark's sister, who is at some sort of bizarre birthing cabin camp and kind of tries to befriend a fellow pregnant woman who's oddly chilly to her and, and she doesn't quite understand why, and then that's revealed later on uh, why that is. And it's, it's partially involving this aspect of the innies and the outies, self-awareness or lack thereof. Zach Cherry, who is just creating a very specific and wonderful niche for himself, you may remember him from the Succession episode, Safe Room, <laughs> where a bunch of employees during an office shooting are locked together. Uh, that's where I first noticed him. He's, he's worked widely in film and television since then. He's a new generation, that guy. Someone I think we're going to see a lot of. Plays Dylan, who's a coworker of Mark's. And he's kind of the enthusiastic one, but not the one who kind of drinks the Kool-Aid, but he really, really, really likes all the perks and the silly prizes that the company gives him for performance. Britt Lower, an actor I did not know, plays Helly Riggs. She's a new employee who replaces a guy named Peter, who was a member of this close-knit group of four who works on the severed floor. He has disappeared. Uh, he is gone, and Britt Lower as Helly Riggs comes in to replace him, and she would be the catalyst through whom questions are asked and presented to all of our other protagonists. Mr. Milchek is a character you will grow to love. Uh, he's played by Tramel Tillman in a scene-stealing performance of utter perfect specificity. He's kind of a a character for whom the wardrobe is such the perfect armor and embodiment of the characterization 
that although the actor is incredibly skilled uh, and he's one of several people in here who I'd never seen or heard of before who I've walked away just thinking, wow, that's, that's a really capable and competent actor. Like the casting of this uh, was just so specifically well done. Uh, so he plays Mr. Milchik, who is kind of the supervisor on the floor. And he has just a brilliantly, lethally kind, rictus grin that masks so much kind of frustration and other information that's going underneath. Another character who steals plenty of scenes and plenty of episodes is Jen Tullock. She plays Mark's sister who's pregnant and who is married to Rickon Hale, who's played by FCAC spirit animal Michael Chernis. And Jen Tullock is one of those actors. Uh, I asked my wife why this might be, and maybe you guys have an answer. Do you remember the Ben Affleck, uh, Rosamund Pike film adaptation of Gone Girl? And do you remember how Carrie Coon kind of, who had been around for quite a while as a, a stage actor, but she kind of emerged out of that movie as this really interesting actor who you just always watched in any scene that she was in, including a scene with someone like Ben Affleck. She just kind of made a mark in that one performance, playing the sister of Ben Affleck's character. And here you have Jen Tullock, who's playing the sister of the Adam Scott character. And similarly, but totally uniquely and differently, she steals so many episodes and so many scenes with her kind of cynical sardonicness and the brilliant way that the writers have created brother sister stuff that's kind of specific to them little language things little routines and games that they do with each other really really well done uh d shen lockman plays miss ms casey who is a wellness counselor if you've misbehaved uh, a little bit you have to go and get a wellness session or if you're just in need of whatever a wellness session entails you go and you sit in this kind of mystical burbling water you know zen garden type counseling floor with a extremely calm and quiet miss casey and there are surprises in store for you once you visit the wellness counselor as i mentioned michael chernis brilliantly plays rick and hale who's a self-help author <laughs> and oh my god i mean if you're familiar with chernis that's the caliber of actor that we're dealing with and everyone i've just mentioned here is just good they are so good real actors who have thoughts about what they're doing. You can just tell that the intelligence kind of comes through. He is brilliant. And as a measure of kind of the brilliance of the acting here, and I think the directing and the, the writing, Rick and Hale is a completely ridiculous character. Devin Hale, the Jen Tullick sister character that I mentioned, is completely reasonable, grounded, kind of someone you would very much want as a friend or a sister. So on paper, this this pairing shouldn't work at all. Yet, it works the way these things work in life. And I think that's part of the strength of this series. And I think the other thing that Chernus does so well with this character is, as I said, if you look at the character on paper, it's, it's easy to make this a one-dimensional caricature. And even though the character spouts these platitudes and writes these ridiculous books, which are brilliant, by the way, the sections of the books that are read aloud and that the characters find meaning in are so brilliantly, perfectly, satirically constructed. 
But because it's an actor with the skill of Chernus, Rick and Hale is also a real person and a caring person and an interested and doting would-be father and husband, a caring brother-in-law. And I think it's such a, a marvelous performance that skirts caricature and really finds these little places for warmth and humanity in what could otherwise be a one or two dimensional character. And that's a great performance that to me is representative of all the other great performances in this show, each of which in their own way does the same thing. So there's a lot of pleasure to be had watching Chernus as Rick and Hale just so believably send up and deliver the brilliant <laughs> caricature of the self-help author. Uh, and then we get into kind of some of the heavyweights here. So we have John Turturro plays another one of Mark's co-workers. He's kind of the all-in drinks the Kool-Aid company man. You have Christopher Walken as Burt Goodman, who comes in a few episodes along. Uh, he is also severed, and he is the chief of optics and design. And he and uh, Irving, uh, Irving Bailiff. Okay, so John Turturro plays Irving Bailiff. Christopher Walken is Burt Goodman. I mean, these names are all so specific to what's going on. So Christopher Walken and John Turturro's character have a friendship that's fascinating. And then another really interesting comment I saw in one of the reviews, I can't remember if it was Variety or the New York Times, but somebody said that Walken's performance in Severance is a great reminder that he's not just this character in quotes called Christopher Walken, which a lot of times he can be used that way in films or comedies or TV series that sort of use him for his persona. But this reviewer made a note that this performance is a great reminder of what a great actor he is and was. And I think that's really true. I think he has so many great, subtle, subtle moments here. Watching him go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Turturro uh, is, is a masterclass. These two get to do things they don't normally get to do. And I think as a result, I found a lot of pleasure watching them act opposite of each other. And their characters bring up really interesting points within the universe of Severance as well. You know, is who your Audi is going to be reflected in who your Innie is? How much personality and life choice issues are manifest in both characters? That's an interesting thing that's brought up by these characters. And then Patricia Arquette. Special shout out to Patricia Arquette plays both Harmony Cobell who is Mark's boss on the floor and the boss of all of these people and is a frightening but really inventive and unique twist on the Ice Queen boss character. And then she also plays Mrs. Selvig, who is just a complete opposite. Uh, she's like a doula, a nursing, uh, a nursing consultant. Brilliant. Brilliantly played and sent up. So... I particularly really appreciated that there's a role for 54-year-old Patricia Arquette that's as good as this. You know, that's a reason to celebrate unto itself. There's not a lot of those roles in Hollywood for women over a certain age. And this is such a wonderful use of Patricia Arquette and such a great use of her longevity as an actor, her gravitas, her sense of humor, her groundedness, her just way with a phrase and with a scene is so, so good. 
So that's our main cast. And then we have a few other people who kind of come and go uh, through the series as we get into the later episodes. But that's our main cast. Now, Adam Scott is someone I never really thought about very much. You know, I think I'm probably more familiar with his comedy work. Here, he is so perfectly cast. And there's a way in which his face, which is so sort of, it's kind of malleable and it's it's almost unnatural in a certain way. Like he's a good looking guy, but his features can resemble like a caricature of a person sometimes. And that's used to great effect here as he enters and leaves Lumen Industries and as he sort of plays the different aspects of these two characters. And what they're all really doing is playing two totally different characters for all of the severed people. It's hard to do. And he and all of them do it really, really well. And the series has a lot of fun with, with that. But it's also very serious and it's done extremely well. So the cast in service of the overall construct here uh, is quite good. Now, this is also a world building exercise because it takes place in an unspecified time. It's a world that resembles our own, but there's those little touches that indicate things are different. There is mention made to a lack of food. Uh, so there's a dinner party scene where they're all just having glasses of water. There is this history of the company where they're all working, which uh, involves a hilarious like amusement park, almost wax figure hall of history of the, found, the generations of these founding fathers, mostly of Lumen Industries, and the kind of archaic, almost biblical, uh, quasi-religious, you know, sort of Mormon feeling dictates, maxims, and proverbs that are taken extremely seriously by somebody like the John Turturro character uh, and are kind of just eye-rollingly tolerated by most of the other characters. Um, but there is an air of menace and uncertainty, which it's not a spoiler to say filters through all nine of the episodes. And the role of this company, what is it doing? Uh, what are the ramifications of the severance process? And so as you'll, as you'll learn in the episode, you know, the severance process is, is a medical process. This is not a magical or fantastical thing per se. It's that they've developed a chip which they implant in your brain and it allows the chip to be activated when you arrive at work and deactivated when you leave work. And through that process, you sever. And the part of the premise of the series is that there's a controversy going on about whether this should be allowed, whether it's like most tech inventions. Is it something for the benefit of humanity or is it really for the benefit of some already fantastically wealthy and powerful people? So that's the setup. The other thing I want to really talk about is the production design is phenomenal. There is such a fascinating mix between the cold corporate labyrinthine, sterile corporate environment of the innie world, uh, which is so brilliantly staged and set up. The colors, the use of hallways, um, the brilliant satire of office culture that takes place there, 
the break room, the uh, all of this stuff is so well done and so artfully done. And part of the star here is these locations that they found. I believe the whole thing uh, was shot um, in and around like kind of Kingston, New York, Nyack, New York, and in New Jersey. And there is a very famous building, uh, which is the Bell Labs Holmdel Complex in New Jersey, uh, which was designed by Eero Saarinen, who also designed what we refer to as the Yale Whale <clears throat> growing up in New Haven. That's the Yale Hockey Rink, which is a very uniquely shaped rink, which looks like a whale. And this Bell Labs campus is just astounding. And it is used to such an incredible uh incredible way. So I want to give a shout out to the production designer, Jeremy Hindle, who uses these very 60s, 70s kinds of looks for all of the corporate stuff. And then all of the kind of Audi stuff takes place in these either brilliantly prefab looking standalone condo units that, that Mark and Mrs. Selvig live in. Uh, which are so brilliant, and you kind of think, God, that's got to be a set, but apparently it's not. It's apparently an actual location. I mean, the interiors are sets probably, but the location, the exterior is just, is actually a kind of quasi-sterile yet homey feeling pastiche of kind of uh, hominess, which has this corporate stamped out, which is such a great and interesting juxtaposition. And then you have the home of, of, of the Hales, Rickon and Devon Hale, which is this incredible wood and glass mid-century modern marvel. And it's just such a great use of production design to indicate stuff that we're going to learn as we go through the series. And I think that given what must have been the restrictions of filming during COVID, limiting itself to available spaces, there's a real cohesion in the production design, the direction, the sound design. All of these things work together, I think, in a way that just speaks to uh, the creators and the showrunners, the executive producers, having, I guess, either the time or the wherewithal to bring all this together in such an incredible fashion. So the way it looks, the way people are dressed, the locations, uh, perfectly, perfectly done. The music is phenomenal. Uh, it's a composer named Theodore Shapiro, who I guess has done a bunch of things like, uh, oh, what's the um, what's the Ben Stiller? You know, what's the Ben Stiller one? That's the war movie, Tropic Tropic Thunder. I guess he did the score for that and for other things. Uh, so, you know but just an unexpectedly kind of brilliant, great, moody, atmospheric uh, score by Theodore Shapiro that's, that's really great. And without saying too much about what happens, I think it's smart science fiction. So here I'm gonna segue into why you're not watching it. Because I feel like this kind of came out and went away. And it's so hard to ascertain whether that's true or not, but I think we can all understand when certain shows really hit to the Twitter sphere. Unfortunately, that's where much of this kind of attention that gets paid to series 
or not plays itself out on social media. And when it plays out on social media, you're really talking about Twitter. And it's so hard when something smart and literate and uh, I don't want to say slow because that's the wrong word, but that rewards your attention. Let's put it that way. Uh, comes out. It's not really built for Twitter, right? Twitter is built for the shockingly, quickly, sexily, glamorous stuff that, you know, is uh, just attention grabbing, you know? And I'm not sure that when this show came out, it came out on February 18th. So as I record this, it is uh, May 2nd. There's nine episodes. So, you know, it came out pretty quickly. I guess they did a, a release strategy where they put the first two out and then they released one per week. Maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe we're living in a time where if you don't put everything out right away and people can't binge it in a, in a day or two or three, you're going to lose a little of that tailwind that might be captured through people experiencing it in real time. I'm not sure. Uh, it could be, let's face it, you know, maybe it's not the most uh, likely think piece on Ben Stiller you're going to see in the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times in promotion of this. So I'm not sure if that's a part of it. But mostly the feeling that I had, and as you know, if you listen to the podcast, you know, I'm a big fan of European television shows, shows from other countries that generally, generally, the good ones that I'm talking about, the good ones that I find, shows like The Bureau or Gomorrah, shows that have a certain amount of intelligence expected from the viewer and a certain amount of filmic confidence to unfold slowly over multiple seasons sometimes and reward close viewing and reward continued viewing and give you all the, you know, all the other stuff that you want. But they are just more intelligently constructed, I find, than even what gets regarded as among the best American series, scripted series. So it's few and far between for me that I actually see an American series where I'm like, hey, okay, you know, case in point, when I did my Succession episode, right? Uh, now that's a show everyone talks about. And is it worth all that chatter? Not really. There are things about it that are superlative, but there's a lot lacking. There's a lot more lacking in that show than is lacking in a show like The Bureau, which running for a similar amount of seasons manages to grow in depth and power and complexity. Um, so that's my kind of hang up sometimes. And that causes me to miss out on things like I missed out on White Lotus because I, you know, inadvertently fell into a trap of my own making, which is just kind of like everyone was talking about it at the time. And I am guilty of sometimes turning off to things just because everyone else is talking about them. And so I presume that it's probably not that good if everyone else is talking about it. But when I watched White Lotus, I was wrong. It's a fantastic piece of work by, uh, by Mike White. So here too, even myself, I didn't catch this show Severance when it came out. And I'm not sure. I wish I could remember why I kind of was like, eh. I think the trailer, in retrospect, I remember seeing the trailer. I remember when the trailer was revealed. And I think after watching the show, I can understand how maybe encountering the trailer didn't feel like something I needed to tune into because it felt and can feel cold and clinical. And that's part of it. 
But there is such heart and such warmth and such interesting human stuff going on underneath that side. But the production design is so good and the world created is so unique that it is very hard to imagine a trailer that can really do justice to something that you kind of have to watch all nine episodes of in order to experience. So I think the trailer may have been part of the problem. I'm not saying that there's a better version of the trailer. I'm just thinking it's maybe that kind of show. It's kind of hard to do a trailer for and capture what makes the show so interesting because what makes the show so interesting is the ways in which it's very unique, even though it draws from things like Black Mirror or being John Malkovich or other kind of meta narrative shows that, you know, apparently inspired some of the creative team here. But it's very hard to capture that stuff in a minute 30 or two minute trailer. And I think that may have been part of the problem. I think as we've seen in recent weeks with Netflix losing 200,000 subscribers and oh my God, you would think the streaming world has caved in as a result. Yes, there's too much stuff. There's too much glut and too much of what we're presented as this slick, shiny, premium content is extremely hollow for the very reason that these streamers are making so many series at the same time that they don't have the ability to ride herd on all of them. And not every creator has the ability to discipline themselves and make something uh, accordingly. So I think we are as viewers kind of in this catch 22 where maybe for most of us, we just need something to kind of have so much chatter that we check it out, by which point maybe we're kind of already sort of half set against it just because we're contrary me putting up my hand, uh, or there's just too much stuff and you miss it. It comes out and it's not easily captured or it doesn't have a huge star at the center of it. So it's easy to overlook in America. I think a lot of this is, is an American problem, as I said many times. We're not the brightest bulbs in the planet here. And this show, to me, is not a very American feeling series in that it prioritizes intelligence. It prioritizes depth. It prioritizes a caliber of acting that you really just don't get to see very often, you know, and the acting matched with the writing, matched with the world building and the production design and the music, it's all going somewhere. And there's no way to get there until the very last second of the very last episode. The reviews I checked today just to see kind of like how it was reviewed, they were uniformly pretty good. Uh, there were a couple kind of nitpicky reviews. I thought the, 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 the sort of worst quote unquote review I saw from a big source was that the Los Angeles Times gave it kind of a, a worse title for the review than the review itself really gave the series. But again, in our short attention span theater world, you know, I'm not sure how many people sometimes don't click on the link if they're like, you know, disappointing Apple series or what have you, when in fact the review itself you know, did a fairly good job sort of pointing out the ways in which the series was interesting and maybe some of the ways in which it lacks, although uh, I don't think I believed that interview, that, that review as much as good reviews in the Times and Variety and other sources I think were on point. So I don't know, I'm a big reviewer guy. I read a lot of reviews. I don't know if you'd read reviews or avoid reviews, but I thought the reviews were pretty uniformly good. Okay, so at this point, from what I'm going to say now is going to involve spoilers that all occur really in the last episode or two of the series. So if you haven't seen the series, turn me off right now. And for the rest of you, 
Well, then you already know what I'm talking about. I mean, my jaw dropped when when Heli turned out to be to be one of them, you know, to be the darling daughter of the patriarch of Lumon. And I didn't see that coming. And another thing I didn't see coming at all was Ms. Casey being the wife. That's such an intriguing, dangling plot line because when you learned that, you you also learned that this conspiracy, this thing that's going on, must be so much larger than than we know and that its own participants know. And the reasons why that is, we don't yet know. And I think that's one of the brave things about the series is that in most American TV series, you're going to get all of the answers in season one that have been set up and teased for you. Very pointedly here, that is not the case. While you get some answers, you don't get the most important answers. And for those, you're going to have to stick around, presumably, to season two, which I would imagine gets farther into this conspiracy and perhaps gets even more naughty and complicated and interesting. And the introduction of more nefarious characters who are in the family and setting up this stuff for whatever reasons we still don't yet know is very tantalizing. And hopefully with all of the setup that's been done in this season, that will be an extremely rewarding situation to get into. And even though a bit of the mechanism of kind of like they're all going to band together to uh, switch themselves on and, and, and live within their Audi world in order to figure out what's going on, yes, it's a bit of a kind of overcomplicated bit of business. However, I think the genius of what we learn about uh, Torturo's character, the car crash kind of feeling that you get watching these characters speed towards conclusions and realizations that are really mind-blowing. Uh, I could not believe it stopped us where it stopped us. I mean, it brings you right up to the version of, of, of everything being revealed that you really want to know, and boom, it turns the lights out, and you got to wait for season two. So the good news is season two has already been greenlit, and there will be a season two. But I think that's also part of why maybe the show hasn't grabbed a lot of people, is that you really do have to watch all the way to the very last scene in order to experience the whole thing. And if some people kind of drop out around maybe a little bit of a baggy middle, uh, they don't get to experience that thing that absolutely sets the hook in super deep. So I can't say enough about it. Uh, if you're a fan of really good acting, if you're a fan of great production design, you're going to be a fan of Severance and you're going to be looking forward, as I am, to season two. So that's it for this week. Quick episode. Rick and I will be back hopefully next week with our Battlestar Galactica 1978. Thank you so much, as always, for listening, for chiming in. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Full Casting Crew Podcast. Uh, also on Twitter, you can find us everywhere. Drop us a note, let us know what you're watching. Uh, let us know what you think about any episodes that you're listening to. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.